you know, if you show incredible toughness and do something that's really passionately aggressive to help the team win in the spirit of helping the team win, everyone sees that and our brains process that. And we actually feel a paler version of that emotion already. So you can, if you can tap into that interconnected system of personality that's under consciousness, um, you can have a really dramatic impact on how a team performs. Welcome to an all new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Rabel, and this week's guest. He set out to answer one of the most hotly debated questions in all of sports. Who and what makes up the greatest teams of all time? And by doing so, he devised his own formula, which we talk about, and applied it to thousands of teams from leagues all over the world of all time. From the NBA to the NFL, English Premier League, Olympic field hockey, and yes, even American and Canadian professional lacrosse, when he was done, he somehow trimmed it down to a list of the 16 most dominant teams in history. And with that list in hand, Sam Walker became obsessed with another more complicated question. What did these freak teams have in common? And as he dug into their stories, a distinct pattern emerged. Each team had the same type of captain, a singular leader with an unconventional skill set who drove it to achieve sustained historic greatness, underscore sustained. So he wrote a book that delivers us this exact formula. So if you're a player, a coach, business person, parent, teacher, or mentor, these lessons and best practices apply directly to you. In his book called The Captain Class, Sam profiles the greatest teams in history and identifies these counterintuitive leadership qualities of the unconventional women and men who drove these teams to succeed. Names like Carlos Puyol, Carla Overbeck, Tim Duncan, and more. I literally cannot wait for you guys to listen to this pod. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entertainment, and business. Enjoy my conversation with best-selling author, the Wall Street Journal's deputy editor for Enterprise, reporter, columnist, and sports editor, Mr. Sam Walker. All right, here's the deal. Because you're Suiting Up podcast listeners, we secured you a free $25 in free clothes deal. Isn't that amazing? It's the perk of uh, being a listener of the show. And this week's sponsor, it's Bombfell. Bombfell is a business that's made an easier way for men to get better clothes. Basically, you go online, you complete a simple questionnaire, and a match one-to-one with a dedicated personal stylist, which is my favorite part about this, is actual curation of our style. They never charge above retail price, offer free shipping and returns, and you have that convenient at-home try-on process. When you receive your clothes, you have seven days to tell Bombfell what you want to keep, sending the rest back at no charge. For me personally, my Bombfell stylist goes along on t-shirts and pants. Styles are ever-changing. And I trust this process to stay ahead of the game. So here's how it works. We're going to send you guys online to bombfell.com forward slash Rabel. You're going to sign up, set up your order, get a preview email, meet your stylist, receive the clothing, and we're off. And for those of you that want to give someone special in your life a Bombfell subscription plan, they told me that they can make that happen too. So you can sign up on behalf of someone else. So here's how you're going to get your $25 off your first purchase. Go to bombfell.com forward slash Rabel. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com forward slash Raybull. Bombfell. Open and close. So we're in we're in Manhattan. We're at our upper West Side studio here. And I have Sam Walker, the author of the Captain Class. 
the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. Sam, I have been referring this book now to my peers, mentees in the lacrosse world, young captains in college, coaches, former podcast guests. It's, it's rich with content, and I'm really excited that you're here to talk about it and dive through some of the best sports teams of all time and their, the engine that allowed them to sustain and maintain excellence over long periods. Well, thanks, Paul. It's great to be here, and thanks for all the support on the book. It's, yeah. really, it's really terrific. I get the message out about leadership. I think it's important. That's right. So why don't we start with your origin story? Yes. Because you spent a lot of time at the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. Now you're multiple-time best-selling author, but a lot of it is wrapped in sports. What yeah. got you there? Well, I started, you know, I kind of backed into sports. I, I'd covered other things. I covered politics. I covered Congress when I first started working for newspapers. But, you know, I worked at this paper, and they just – editor said to me one day, like, hey, uh, you know, get a notebook and head over to the Boston Garden. And, uh, <laughs> and I went over, and I didn't know anything about sports writing. I had no idea what I was doing. I looked like an idiot in my college khakis wandering around not knowing where to go. And it just so happened that that the team that Celtics were playing was Michael Jordan's Bulls. So that was my first ever game, and I'm seeing Michael Jordan in person, right. and that kind of kicked it off. But, you know, I started – I really love sports writing because it's just – there's so much – it's so much more expressive and interesting, and the writing's really fun, and then the traveling and the, the competition is great. And, you know, I had this crazy job at the Journal, which is I was really just kind of a one-man band. I was a columnist, and so I had to – fly all over the place just uh you know covering the major events the big events and marquee things so yeah. i had this kind of crazy window into like the best of of sports in all its different ways so i got i got hooked and loved it loved it and just last year i finally felt like i you know i sort of tapped it out so i went back to the news side at the journal and now the deputy page one editor which is another kind of challenge but sports will never be far from my thoughts yeah and, and your book preceding this one was Fantasyland, and you, you kind of you hacked fantasy sports <laughs> and baseball. But I think that's interesting that you bring up your experience in politics and business prior to sports because we look at it from a high level in ways that we can improve and innovate is that nothing better than fresh perspective usually helps. And I know in, in your former book, you, you talked about working with Major League Baseball managers prior to the big uh, – shift into statistics right. and and how you were shocked that you know the, the the good old boys were doing the same old things and uh expecting to win right. and then you introduce something from a fresh perspective perhaps looking at metrics and politics and business and say why aren't you know sports front offices management teams and ownership groups looking at this we're starting to see it more and more but would you say that that fresh perspective has helped you get a leg up relative to a lot of traditional sports writers and columnists? Yeah, no, that's really been the way I've always approached it. And being at the Journal was helpful because we didn't have great deadlines. So we, we don't, didn't really do game coverage. We kind of had to write stories about ahead of the event. So we had to think about what's going on here. We had to think about strategy and analysis. So that helped a lot. But, you know, the thing that unifies both those books and the thing that I think has been really what's been the most fascinating to me about sports in the last two decades is, you know, I've always just been attracted to great teams. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on one great team when I was 11, a t-ball team or little league baseball team. You guys were team. undefeated. Undefeated. It's 12 a great no, team. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, that's the only great team I've ever been on. And, and so but I, it, beyond that, I just always, whenever I was around these great teams and these dynasties, 
I just wanted to know what was going on. It was just a weird obsession that I had. And I realized that the books are tied together because in a way, I could tell there was something about a great team, about the chemistry of a great team that you can't see in the numbers, that doesn't show up in the statistics. So when when the first you know, money ball revolution happened, you know, part of my motivation for doing that first book was, you know, well, well, what do the old grizzle scouts know? Like, you know, what is there, is there some knowledge that you can't put, pull out quantitatively? And this is really an extension of that. Cause you know, I, I finally, in 2005, I said, you know what, this has been an itch I've wanted to scratch forever. You know, what makes great teams great? What is it? And that's, that's where this started. And, you know, it started as this big amorphous question that seemed unknowable. And then, you know, 12 years later, uh, I couldn't believe the pattern that I found and how clear it was. Well, a ton of research and you've story told so well. You mentioned starting in 2005. It's because you were with the Red Sox in 2004, kind of auditing them and watching their progress as they started out slow and then went on that run down three games in the playoffs to the Yankees, won four in a row. Then what swept the World Series or won? Yeah, swept the Cardinals, crushed them. Swept, and so you were thinking, "Wow, this was a team, and this result happened really out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting this." No, and and then so much to say that that you originally addressing the top teams of all time didn't think you were going to write a book, and didn't think you were going to discover that it came down to the captain. You were just kind of like, hey, this may lead to a nice article, and, and we'll see where it goes from here. Is that right? Yeah. No, I thought 900 words, man. Right. You know, here are the 10 best teams of all time, and here are the three things they have in common. I mean, I didn't set out to, to go down this giant rabbit hole that I did. I mean, you know, but what I realized right away was that no one had really done that. No one had really started with the first question, like, what are the best teams of all time? And can you do this in a comprehensive and objective way? Mm-hmm. And I realized the only way to do it is the entire world, every sport in the history of the world, you know, at a, at a high level. And so I went through all that. And, you know, then the, the larger question, of course, the second question was was even tougher, what they had in common. And that's the thing. I didn't realize I had all these prejudices and they were baked into me. Right. So, you know, first I, I saw a bunch of teams I didn't recognize. That was weird. And then, you know, I went to my old standbys. A great team is, is a matter of talent, right? Leadership, brilliant tactics or money, all those obvious things. And I just couldn't believe one by one, there was no pattern there. So I want to, on this show for the first time, do something different in, in way of my framework. And we're going to do two exercises together. Okay. And, and, it, and it helps us kind of navigate through this book, I think, which is the first, as you're mentioning, identifying the best teams of all time, which you created your own criteria and did a ton of research on. So exercise one is going to be teams. Exercise two is going to be captain, which is what you figured out. And we'll talk about what the best leadership traits are okay. and such. So if we start at teams, yeah. you approach this again from a qualitative research and quantitative research standpoint. You looked at every sports league and you actually gave American professional across a shout out. Yeah. We didn't make the cut. We'll talk about why. Well, we will. <laughs> but, it's a but, great sport, great team sport. So how did you wrap your arms around, okay, I want to objectively get to the top teams of all time. So uh, the first thing is, uh, first we have to define something really basic, which what's a team? You know, and, and it's amazing to me that no one's ever really looked at that because, you know, a boxing team, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these guys compete individually, but there's no team interaction. Right. So how is that an, a team really in the fullest sense of the word? And when you say interaction, you mean like, 
like in the ring. Like they're not like trading off. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Like there's team no teamwork in yeah. the scope of play. There's so many teams that are really individual athletes competing individually under with the same jersey, basically. Right. And so I ruled those out. I said, that's, that, that, those are teams, but not to the fullest extent. So I cut those. And then you know, there are other teams like a rowing team. Those guys work together, but they don't have any interaction with an opponent. They don't have to make adjustments, you know, what, whatever their opponent's doing. So gotcha. I felt, all right. That's not a team in the full sense either. And then the question is, how many people are on a team? I mean, I I looked for every possible definition I could find, and it was like, it's it's like a two or more people, right. you know. But I really think that if you have a team that consists of two people, the individual's performances matter so much mm-hmm. that you know they can, it's really an individual sport. So at what point do you start to really does the collective start to matter more than individual performance? And I. You know, just based on random odds, you know, or, or basic odds, I said five. So I didn't think three. That's kind of a trio. Four, whatever. Five is where I started. So that ruled out some sports as well. Um, and then, you know, the next question really was was crazier. How do you define greatness? Right. I mean, and, and I looked at every list, and there were people who were like, oh, it's winning percentage. Oh, it's championships over the entirety of the franchise's history or something. Right. You know, <laughs> no, I, that's not greatness. Like, right. So the idea is like, wh- what, is, what is greatness? And to me, it was sustained excellence. So I started, I said, four years. You know, because I realize there are a lot of three peats. Seems pretty easy to be good for three years. Right. I said four. Let's go with four. Pat Riley might not be happy. No, about that. a lot of <laughs> no the Lakers. Right. A lot of three peats fell out, and you know, but but I started at four, and I said, okay, they also have to play at the highest possible level of their sport. So college sports didn't quite make it because there's there's always pros. There's always a better level. Which was a big one when you look at the UCLA Bruins. Yeah. No, they, they're perfect. And I'd love to do a study of college teams too at some point. But I think everything's different because of the recruiting, because of four-year uh, lifespan of players. Yeah. I think it's a different dynamic. I really like that in particular, that that, that level of competition that you outline in, in your book and that you know, there are unbelievable college teams. You can even look at Alabama. Yeah and Nick Saban, but they just don't play against the top caliber in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's a good out out of the box, again, fresh perspective way at trying to define all time greatest. I I mean, I've my clothes are covered with tomatoes from doing this. I mean, (laughs) the Bulls fans, man, they hate me. The Patriots, the college fans, everybody hates me for something. But the problem is, here's what I wanted to do. I just wanted a sample. I wanted a clean, objective, scientific sample of great teams that I could use to study the next question. And so I had to make some brutal cuts. You know what? In the book, the back of the book, there are 122 teams that were like very close. That's right. And you know, that's tier two, right? Yeah. And they're all, a lot of them are toss ups, but you know what? The 16 that I picked, all I can say about them is there's no asterisks there. There's no argument that they aren't one of the great teams of all time. So Mm -hmm. that's all I wanted because I just wanted a pure sample. You, You talk about, and this is one that I had to read over and over again, sort of the originality. Uh, or what what makes this team unique, and that was ultimately why you pushed the Chicago Bulls out, who won six in eight years. Uh, talk about that. Well, that was the final weeder. So you know, I, I had a couple other things that they had bars they had to get over, and the one you mentioned, lacrosse, and you know, terrific team sport. But the problem with lacrosse is it had to be a truly global sport, or that had millions and millions of fans and. and spectators so that you know there were some great sports that didn't quite make it because they just don't have the global reach or the or the fan base yet although i'm sure a lot of them will 
Um, but the last one was that thing. Here's here's my logic. Okay, a lot of this just came down to logic. I'm like, if you're going to say that this is my team's the greatest team in the history of sports, well, you know, it kind of goes without saying that you must have done something that no team in the history of sport had ever done. Of your sport, on your sport, yeah. you have to at the be absolutely to say we did something no one else has done. Because you know, then you're just ta- you're not just talking. You actually can say no one has done what we did. So. That was the weeder. And, you know, there were some strange cuts there because, again, the Patriots, you know, the Patriots uh, currently, I mean, were a really tough cut. But look, five Super Bowls over a long stretch, very high winning percentage. But if you put them next to the 49ers from 80 to 95, it's pretty much identical at this point. Mm-hmm. So if they win again, they're in. But I had to cut them. I mean, it had to be brutal. And the Bulls, you know, they probably arguably the best single season basketball team of all time. But, you know, the Celtics won 11 titles in 13 years. So they beat them on that score. And the Spurs went to playoffs 19 straight seasons, highest winning percentage in the history of the NBA. So to me, those two achievements, because they're unique, put them ahead of the Bulls. So off they went. Gotcha. So I'm going to read through the 16 finalists. We have the Collingwood Magpies. (laughs) You know the Magpies. (laughs) Australian Rules Football. The New York Yankees. Uh, Hungary, the men's soccer team, which you kick off the book with in fascinating fashion. Uh, I I don't know my soccer history as well, although I I love Carlos Puyo, and we'll talk about him as the captain of Barcelona he spent some time on. But uh, I do know that England uh, is is starving for world prominence that they once had that was lost in the 50s to this Hungary team. So I suggest looking them up if you have it. The Montreal Canadiens, Boston Celtics, Brazil – men's soccer team, Pittsburgh Steelers, the Soviet Union men's hockey team, which I actually, <laughs> this, this was unique in and of itself, was, was we all talk as Americans about the miracle on yeah. ice in the 80s or 1980. And then you bring to life, oh, this Soviet Union team kicked ass for the next nine after years the, after, the, after, after like, the miracle. Yeah. They were unstoppable. So my favorite story <laughs> about them is they played these NHL all-stars, right? right? And it was like Gretzky, Bobby Orr. I mean, it was like this inc- the best all-star team they'd ever had. Mm. And they beat them eight to one. The Russians just blew them off the ice. It was amazing. So, so you have the, the New Zealand All Blacks. Uh, that is 86 to 90. I have a question. We'll come back to the All Blacks. Cuba, women's volleyball, Australia, women's field hockey, United States, women's soccer, the 99ers that we all remember them by, and Julie Foudy's been on the podcast before. The Spurs, as you had just spoken about, Barcelona, which I think in in all sports is is the best team ever, Uh, France, men's handball, and then the All Blacks again. How did you include the All Blacks twice, given that originality concept? You know, that last All Blacks team was the last team to make it on the list, like while I was still writing. And they won back-to-back World Cups, and no one's ever done that. And also, their record between was incredible. I mean, they lost three matches or something. Uh, so they got in for that. And then, you know, the other All Blacks team had this incredible f- streak over four seasons where they didn't lose in, I think it was 53 matches. And no one's ever done anything like that before. So that was unique, too. So it was like sometimes it was longevity of a winning streak, and sometimes it was it was championships. But, you know, it just had to be unique. That's very cool. So – all-time greatest you mentioned is is a is a is a very loud conversation. Right. So this was the topic originally, and then you said, and, and I'll quote you: "Writing a book on leadership was the last thing that I thought I was going to do." But as you dug deeper, you found this commonality in these tier one sixteen teams, and that was the captain. 
and 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 it got even better for you because it was the unconventional captain where for so long we think and this was a you know, a really eye-opening book for me as you know, as an athlete. I'm always trying to improve, and then there are things, and there are frankly juxtapositions that you're in as as a skilled player, one that that needs to have the ball in the clutch or should have the ball in the clutch, and and then this unconventional captain. We'll, we'll talk about about that at, at length, but you found the captain, not the coach, and not necessarily the star player. Actually, not the star. Not player. the star player. Yeah. to be the glue for a sustainable, successful organization. I couldn't believe it. I mean, really, when, when I started, I, I, I cottoned on to this kind of early because I looked at uh, Bill Russell and the Boston Celtics. And you know, I, I looked at that team. I was scouring that team. And I said, gee, that's kind of funny. Like, th- this started the season that Russell showed up, and it ended the season he left. Well, you know, wow, it was, must be Bill Russell's talent or something. And you know, and then again, as I was looking at all the things I thought it was, talent, coaching, tactics, money, I saw the New Zealand All Blacks, his team from the from mm-hmm. the late 80s. And I was like, wait a minute, this guy, Buck Shelford, showed up and they immediately started this incredible winning streak. He became the captain of the team. And then they, they very controversially sacked him because they didn't think he was uh, playing well enough. And immediately, two weeks later, they lost their first match. And I was like, that's uncanny. That's weird. That was like Russell. And so I had an inkling this might be true. I never thought that it would pan out. But then I start looking at all these teams over and over again. And I'm like, it's, this is crazy. It was uncanny. The, the, the dominant streak from beginning to end corresponded almost precisely with the arrival and departure of one player. And it was always the person who was or would become the captain. And, and I mean, slap your forehead, obvious. It's a thing. You can look it up. It's mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. And it just, you know, all the other things, meanwhile, you know, coaching. Some of these teams had great coaches. Some had terrible coaches or had two different coaches. You know, some had mediocre talent. Some had great talent. There was no pattern. Right. So this was the only pattern. Believe me, I looked at everything I could find, and this is the only one. So tier two team that you mentioned, New England Patriots, could potentially become a tier one for you if they win again, or likely... Oh, they fit the profile perfectly. Fit the profile. Completely. In S- fact, they're such a great example of what I'm talking about. So you have a Bill Belichick and a Greg Popovich, two arguably best coaches of all time right. across sports, and you're suggesting that Tom Brady, which many people talk about in sports, uh, Tom Brady uh, wouldn't be anything without Bill and... You know, Bill, if he didn't have Tom Brady, who knows? And 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 you're putting all the eggs in the basket of Tom Brady. And and there's a lot, there's a lot to go up to that, right? Teddy Bruschi was the leader and the captain, and Coach Belichick talks about it at length, but mm-hmm. you also note uh, throughout the book that there has to be a learning process for any captain. Right. Um, and, and then Tim Duncan to pop. Yeah. With those two examples, you've talked about Sir Alex Ferguson yeah. too, who aren't who isn't on the list, but right. These great coaches, they're not going to create sustainable winning organizations without the servant captain? No. I mean, here's, here's, here's how it works, though. I mean, I, may, I wrote a provocative chapter. I was trying to be provocative. I was like, do coaches matter? Right, you know? right. Because I've always, been a, I've always been a little irritated by this coaching cult. 
I think coaches get way too much credit, way too much blame for what happens in the field. And, you know, Alex Ferguson has flatly said, you know, that what happens on the field, you know, for me, it was the captain's responsibility to execute. I couldn't control that. I control everything else but not that. And he's probably the greatest coach in, in the most popular sport in the world. So, but here's, here's what happened. I, I went immediately to California to interview this guy named Willie Davis who was the defensive captain for Vince Lombardi. And like, I need to figure this out. I'm starting with Lombardi, the greatest coach that I could think of, right? <laughs> and you know what I found in Willie Davis? He's just exactly like all these other captains. So, you know, here's, <laughs> here's the thing. And this is, this is, this is, this is, I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. Coaches matter crucially, but the reason they matter and the most important decision they make is choosing a captain. And it's that relationship between them, if it works properly, if they give them space and autonomy, if they let them be a middle manager between what they want and what the players want, and, and let them have independence and a say and treat them more as a peer than, than, a, than a boss, uh, then that's where the magic happens. Look at Belichick. He came to the Patriots. He was a, a kind of a weirdo who went on rambling press conferences and, and had kind of failed in Cleveland. He wasn't Bill Belichick, you know, but together with Brady, he, has, he hit this incredible peak. Same with Popovich. Popovich was almost fired. Duncan helped save Popovich's job, and now Popovich is a genius. You know, the thing is, you see these pairs, and it really comes down to over and over again, it's the coach and the captain, and it is a bickering, affectionate, contentious, sometimes difficult relationship. But that's where the magic happens. That's what coaches have to understand. That's an incredibly important decision, and they don't take it seriously enough. And, and, and that's the partnership that, that you're talking about. My question is, so many teams, is this, is this off, the strategy that, that a lot of these teams have? Most important decision for a coach is selecting the captain. Yet many teams, and even Barcelona, elect their captain through the players. Right. Which is incredibly important as you have seven traits as to what makes an, this effective leader and captain in your book. Uh, and one of them, and in, in you go at length, is, is the ability to have individual conversations right. with your teammates and equally listen as you do speak and solve problems quickly. So getting the vote of your players uh, is important. But if a coach offloads that into a voting process, would you say, hey, come on. Think about it differently. I would say do not do it. Don't do Don't it. Don't do it. No, I, the coach has to nominate the captain. I, I just think – so in the Barcelona is a great case. So there were a few there examples in my book of teams where the captain was elected. But the thing is Barcelona has this incredible culture because all those guys grew up together at the academy mm -hmm. and they play together and it's a humble team. I mean, they, they give them all Audis and like, you're driving this Audi sedan. There's no Ferraris in our parking lot. <laughs> you know, Ibrahimovic came to, to Barcelona and, and Pep Guardiola famously said, we keep our feet on the ground here. And he honestly left because he was just like, I can't live like this. Right. <laughs> but look at Leo Messi. Like Leo right. Messi's like Steph Curry. And the Warriors are mm -hmm. a beautiful example of this exact kind of team. But, but Leo Messi, you know, he's brilliant and kind of a diva, but, you know, he's a team guy. Mm -hmm. He wears the team's sweats. Like, he's not swagging around. He, he's right. part of the team. He understands that. And so they had a great culture. And, of course, they elected the right captain yeah. because, you know what, that culture was already there. And, and the problem is most teams don't have that built-in culture, and then players are not going to pick the right person. So if you, unless, you ha unless you have that level of – uh, chemistry and buy-in, I think you have to nominate the captain. There's a great story you tell about the antithesis of Barcelona and Real Madrid, and you're able to address not only the political uh, 
atmosphere in in Spain and Catalonia, the, the Catalonians and the, their autonomy. But before the the modern transfer market that we're seeing in the NBA and and now kind of infiltrating all sports where athletes, probably a combination of, of media and technology and social media and then just millennials and Gen Zs looking to be more experiential. They're saying, well, my contract's up. Let me go try out a new city. Let me put myself in a place. Loyalty was king, and especially with traditional sports. Figo left, was the player of the year for Barcelona, was one of the first to leave for money and then on top of it to the arch rival in Real Madrid, uh, they were playing a year later and the match was, you know, you tell a story better than me, but it was, it was the biggest event on the planet. It was 2000, it was October and Figo, no one had ever done this before. No, I mean, players had left Barcelona and kind of wound up at Real Madrid or lesser players had gone there, but no one really cared. This was the best player in the world. And, and back then, Barcelona had adopted Figo as like a compatriot for life. And the betrayal, not only to take the most money, highest transfer fee ever, but to go to Real Madrid. So he came back in his first match, and it was off the chain. I mean, I've never seen. The videos are crazy. People, there's these, there, Everyone's got banners with like every imaginable bad word in Spanish. And people were throwing bicycle chains and bricks and water balloons. I mean, they, there was really some concern that they'd burn the place down if they lost. And so the, the manager at the time, who wasn't manager for very long, but he, he faced this excruciating decision because not only could he, he have to win or he was probably going to lose his job, right. but he had to keep Figo from scoring. Because even if they won, you know, eight to one, and yep. Figo scored, you know, this is El Clasico. Yeah, the Clasico. Oh, the biggest in the match. Super Bowl. Yeah. yeah, no, I think it was something like you know, eighty or ninety percent of people in Spain were watching this match. So uh, it was it was crazy, and and he had to figure out what to do, and he made this incredibly brave and slightly crazy decision, which is that he picked this kid named Carlos Puyol, who you know was kind of only tangentially on the team at that point. And he wasn't very fast. He wasn't clever with the ball. He, he was just tough. And, and he was also relentless. And he'd seen Puyol face Figo in practice and knew that he wasn't intimidated by him. He was also a, a kid from Catalonia and like a patriot. And he gave him the job and made him switch positions to do it. So he's playing in an unfamiliar position, gets the best player in the world <laughs> in, in this incredible environment where, you know, they were going to riot if, if he made a mistake. And, the way he shut Figo down was amazing. He was just like a, just like a Labrador. He was everywhere. He jumped in front of me, you know, jumped in front of his spikes. He slide tackled him. He pushed him. He shoved him. He got a yellow card. Figo hit him at one point out of frustration. Got a yellow card, but he completely shut him down. And that was the day that that guy Carlos Puyol became a sensation. He became a thing, not a sensation, because he wasn't a great player. He was just incredibly relentless. It was something genuine about his effort and how much he cared and everyone could see it and you know two i think it was three years later he was the captain of the team and the rest is history i mean those guys that was the best team ever and you know that was at a time when it was impossible to keep a team together i mean this is modern times everyone says oh it's hard to have a dynasty now because the players move around no barcelona did it and you want know the golden state warriors are doing it now too so you can do it the patriots are doing it now yeah it just takes a certain level of buy-in by the team, but that all comes from the cap and all comes from leadership. Yeah, and, and you've called it a, a servant and even used the word or the phrase water carrier, which I love. And, and 
actually, there, there's so much material in here that's applicable to all players, captains or not, that I, I, I stumbled on a quiz that you have on your website. Oh, no, the quiz. Uh, yeah, go, go to buysamwalker.com. All, all this stuff will be in our show notes as always. And so I took it. And, and then I thought to myself, well, you know what? Why don't I share my answers with my audience and just kind of walk this walk through this with you? Okay. And, uh, and because I do have some some questions, and yep. so there's no no better opportunity when you actually <laughs> yeah, have right? the creator of a <laughs> of a test to ask yeah. some questions to. Uh, but but so so I was able to keep my highlighted answers, and I tried to answer it as honest as possible. Now, granted, I'm a different um, mindset as a 31 year old uh, captain and athlete than I was when I was a 21 year old. But we'll start with the first one. So it's during a football game, a cut on your hand starts squirting blood all over your uniform. Would you tell the medical staff not to touch you, ask the trainers to apply new bandages during a break, leave the game to get bandaged, then return, ask your coach to make a ruling? So I said, ask the trainers to apply new bandages during a break. So I I do think that's accurate to me. I know a lot of fierce competitors that would tell the medical staff not to touch them. I think I would have done that as a young 20-year-old. I'm just a bit smarter now. But anyway, let's, let's, let's have you address that because Puyol is known to be playing with gashes in his head. Yeah. Uh, you know. So this is one of the traits of the captains. First of all, that story, all these quiz questions were an actual situation, and that's exactly – the answer is what the captain did. And this is Jack Lambert in this, in this incredible game against Cincinnati in 1976. He had won two Super Bowls. He started one and four that season. Everyone left him for dead, and this was a huge game they absolutely had to win. It was one of those moments where these dynasties could have crumbled, and that's when these leadership moments happened. And in this case, you know, Lambert, this cut, I mean, it was gruesome. He was bleeding everywhere. And I asked the trainer, well, what ha- why didn't you change the bandage? He said, Jack would never want that. You know, if you know anything about Lambert, you know, the cr- he had this crazy, he was missing teeth. He was right. crazy. His reputation as a madman. But the truth about Lambert is he was about 6'3", which is hilariously small for a Lambert. He was not a big man. He was not fast, not a great athlete. But he cultivated this intimidating persona. But what he did, and one of the things all these captains did, it took me a long time to figure this out, but in these moments, these tough moments when everything was about to fall apart, they would do something crazy. They would bowl somebody over. They would, they would play with blood all over them. They, would, they understood that there's a way to motivate people subconsciously and that our emotions are connected. So they would communicate them with them in normal terms, but they also had this ability. It's like it's innate... It's not showmanship, but they just understood that sometimes a gesture, something powerful that you do, some sign of sacrifice and toughness is contagious and has a contagious effect on the group. Yeah, you call it, you, you said, mentioned doggedness and, and their resilience, their ability to fight through. Is it, with any of these captains, did you ever see them take off plays in a game? No. I mean, you know, there, there were... There were some things that I thought were interesting, like Bill Russell hated to practice, yeah. you know, and there were times where, you know, he would cut some deal with Red where they would get in a screaming match and Red would say, get out of here, you know, but they kind of planned it ahead of time so he could huh. just not have to practice that day. <laughs> so, but, you know, no, I mean, the thing is, there were there were times, ways they could cut corners, but when it came to actual competition, no way. And... I, I mean, I never saw it. Watch Carlos Puyol. There's this famous game where they're winning 10 to nothing. 
and he's he's running around like it's the Champions League final, and he's yelling at his teammates, and they're kind of laughing at him, like you think he's crazy, but there was an intensity there, and and you know Russell before every game he would throw up, even a meaningless game, he, he just had this this sort of live or die attitude. So um, it's okay to take a playoff once in a while, I think, but. For the most part, I think these elite captains, you want to have an elite dynasty that lasts that long, I think you're going to have to really not take any plays off. It sounds like they were at least super aware of the impact that that would have on their team. Another question is, before taking the field for a championship final, would you ask your teammates to take turns addressing the group, give a passionate speech, say nothing but work hard to exude confidence, or circulate among the players to talk to them individually? So for me, this is something I've picked up lately. I used to try and give the passionate speech, still try to, uh, but I would say ask your teammates to take turns addressing the group. And now I know what Tim Duncan does, which is... He circulates widely and talking to everyone individually and quietly without, um, without any big grand speeches or gestures. That was the thing that I, I still think of all the things that's probably I'm not scoring craziest. as a great captain right now. But I, know. I told you I was going to give you all oh, my no. open answers. But well, no, you we'll are. Get to it's that. okay yeah, because yeah. you know what? You can give speeches. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think it hurts. Right. But what's important is none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, just that they didn't like it. I mean, look, look, once in a while they would address the team, but most of them didn't. So, but the thing that they did. Is that really matters is is something that's been backed up by fascinating research. It just shows that every great team that you know really every high performing team, it really comes down to, to communication above all other factors. Talent, you know, how long they've been together, it's communicate how well they communicate. And these great teams have the same kind of data signature, which is just one person in that group who circulates around, feels comfortable approaching everyone, talks to everybody in turn intensely with great intensity and listens as much as they talk and kind of addresses problems in the moment. That's the communication pattern of a great captain. And we would never notice it because Tim Duncan, you look at Tim Duncan. I mean, he's, he, he, you watch him giving an interview, you know, you think he's having open heart surgery. Right. He looks miserable, right? <laughs> he's not, there's no charisma there. Like, where's the charisma? No, but if you watch him on the court and the way he interacts, the way he uses his body language and his eyes, he's a master of communicating simple messages and, and, and talking to his teammates. And that's how you do it. Yeah. And, and I love, again, I just want to emphasize that this is how these captains uh, were able to demonstrate qualities and traits that led to this sustain, sustainable all-time career with their organization. Uh, another quote that I pulled from your book was that we're capable of making deep connections with people around us without communicating. And that's really interesting to me as I'm just now starting in my late 20s to now learning how to actually communicate openly, transparently, being vulnerable. Um, and, and you're suggesting that a lot of these athletes, now that's important. You're not saying, hey, you know, be dishonest. But you're just saying that there's a way, especially in sports, that and and there's a lot of science and research behind it that you can look your teammate in the eye, your posture, your effort on the floor or on the field, and that is more powerful than hoorahing or or speaking or giving this speech. Yeah, no, there's there there's so many things that are contagious, and the relentlessness, as I said, that's contagious. There have been studies that have shown that you know generally people when they're in a group setting and they're doing the same thing the same task won't work as hard in a group setting as they will by themselves. It's something called social loafing. 
and it's a common phenomenon. It's, it's just a fact of human nature that you, you work harder alone than you do in groups. Hmm. But they've shown, other studies have shown that uh, you can be overcome. And the way to overcome it is if you tell everyone in the group, one of the people in this group is a high effort performer. This person always gives 100%. Then they will work just as hard in a group setting as they do alone. And so it's just a perception that someone is giving it their all, you know, immediately improves a group's actual performance. So that relentlessness is, is contagious. And emotions are highly contagious. And there's two things, two traits of these captains that play into that. The first is their emotional control. I mean, they had this incredible ability to play through not just awful injuries, like a heart attack, you know, a torn scrotum, you know, a broken foot. I mean, a fractured skull. I mean, they played through incredible pain, but they also played through emotional torment. Mm -hmm. You know, the French handball captain, Jerome Fernandez, famously won this world championship game while his, after, a day after finding out his father was dying of cancer and was a, maybe had days to live and he would, might never see him again. Under that kind of pressure, without telling anyone about it, mm-hmm. he played brilliantly. So there's that emotional control. And that that's not contagious, but I mean, you're sparing your teammates that emotional, whatever, having to deal with, with your emotional baggage. But the real thing is the first thing you hit on, which is that you know if you show incredible toughness, and do something that's really passionately aggressive to help the team win in the spirit of helping the team win. Everyone sees that, and our brains process that, and we actually feel a paler version of that emotion already. So you can, if you can tap into that interconnected system of personality that's under consciousness, um, you can have a really dramatic impact on how a team performs. Emotional control, when we look at captains, and this was my sports idol growing up, and, and performance-wise, I believe the best of all time in Michael Jordan, and you give statistics in your book as to why as well. Uh, but w- you also mentioned uh, you know, the Bulls go on their run when co-captain Bill Cartwright comes on board, who was like <laughs> Lionel Messi's Carlos Puyol. Yes, he was. It's the most incredible thing that I no one talks about. I mean, look, I study captains, so of course I thought this was like a eureka moment, but I didn't understand Jordan. You, you know, I mean, he was my idol too. And, you know, I realized that that's where Michael Jordan is where I got my prejudices about leadership. I thought you had to be the best player, take the shot with the game on the line, incredibly charismatic, great with the media. Like, you know, I, I thought those were the, the hallmarks of leadership because that just was beaten into me when I was watching sports. And, what I found out in talking to his teammates and just looking around, he was not a good captain. In fact, he was probably a bad captain. Right. I mean, he had a lot of talent on that team, and, and they, they didn't win for the first six seasons. Everyone's saying Michael Jordan's the greatest NBA player who will never win a championship. Phil Jackson was a second-year coach. He wasn't Phil Jackson. He was just some guy who was kind of on the hot seat, the, Jordan's third coach. But Jackson made Bill Cartwright the captain, and Bill Cartwright was the last guy you would ever think of as a leader. You know, he was kind of this sad guy who had this sad expression. He was always in pain. He had terrible knees. He never said anything. It was completely, you know, uninteresting. And, you know, but he mentored the younger players. He tried to get them to buy into their roles on that team. And uh, he played, he would do anything. He could score a lot, but he didn't. He did whatever needed to be done on the field. He carried water for the team. 
And that was that was the moment. So they started the 90s season. They were like eight and thirteen. I mean, they were they were having a terrible season. Go back and look. The day that he made this announcement, that's the day they became a championship team. If you looked at the numbers and said, just purely the numbers and said, what's the moment the Bulls became a championship team? You would point to that day because they went on this incredible tear and they won their first title. But they started the season really badly. It was that day. I mean, it's clear as a bell that there was a huge impact there. And, uh, you know, then that's when Jordan became good, when he had that, when he was allowed to be the star and someone else was taking care of the duties of management. Wow, there's so much to, to ask. I have three questions in my head. <laughs> a, At this point, if it's, we're it's, in Chicago, they're hauling me out it, by it, my legs. Well, it's fascinating. Yeah, right. As you mentioned, the the prototypical uh, you know this uh, this American all American captain. It's almost like captainship is your is your credence. Right. Uh, I, I I had Dave Petromalo on my podcast, uh, the the best defend defenseman in lacrosse of all time, the only person to have won Player of the Year and Coach of the Year, uh, and the only person to have won an NCAA Division One National Championship as a player and a coach. And he still says to this day, and he said it on the pod that his biggest regret is that he was never a captain on the Johns Hopkins team because we set those standards for ourselves. But now just hearing you and, and, and spending time on this book, it's like, that, that may have been the best thing he didn't yes. realize that happened totally. because the captain of his championship team was the glue. And this is that servant. So my thought then is, Sam, there are top caliber players, which you say like, hey, the Cristiano Ronaldo's, the Lionel Messi's, the Michael Jordan's, that that public facing the entertainment on top of the play, that's what makes sports rich. That's actually what makes them great from a confidence and ego standpoint and why they are so untouchable. There's nothing wrong with that. No. But oh, there's a lot of conversation around top players either finding other top players to, to try and win a championship with or finding a top coach. And my thought after reading this is, should top players be finding the best captain? Yes. I think they should be desperate for that because, you know, what it does, and and I've seen this time and again, it releases them. You know, being a superstar is really hard. And, you know, Sue Bird, I was talking to Sue Bird, who's a captain of the women's mm-hmm. U.S. basketball team, who's a, one of these characters, an, an amazing leader. You know, she was at UConn before this, I and mean, she just won everywhere she went. And she has all these qualities and that humility. But she said that... It took her a while to figure it out, but she realized that being a superstar is really hard because you have to be selfish. You got to take 20 (laughs) shots and you got to do it even when you probably shouldn't because that's your job because you're just better than everyone, but you still have to set yourself apart from the team to do that. And she understood, once she understood that, she figured out how there's this dichotomy. You can be a superstar. The great example is Pelé. Pelé, greatest player of all time on Brazil you know, incredible player, was never the captain of that team. Because in Brazil, they understood being Pelé is is tough because he's worshipped like a god. And to play at that level, you need to go off and do whatever you need to do to be Pelé. Mm. And that's enough for one guy. So the leader and the captain of that team was always a defender you'd never heard of, who never scored, who sat back and took care of business behind you know, worried about everything else that needed to be done, except, you know, the superstar. So superstars should love this because it releases them. It allows them also mm-hmm. to take the to take the spotlight and the limelight yeah. because these captains, none of them wanted personal accolades. They were like Tim Duncan. They hated attention. They didn't want awards. They wanted to win. And that frees the superstar to be the person out front taking the credit with no guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're not worried that the captain really secretly wants to be up there. No, the captain would rather be home playing 
you know, Sega Genesis or whatever it was right. at the time, you know? Just yeah. dated myself. So, you know. <laughs> your team is being horribly fouled. You've suffered several injuries and your team is headed for defeat. Would you urge your coach to pull the starters, employ the same dirty tactics, play harder, berate the referees until they intervene? I've done all four. Uh, I, I selected play harder because I felt that the employ the same dirty tactics, uh, the, the language there uh, was a, a little bit, hmm. there was a variance for me in that, you know, especially in indoor lacrosse, if, if someone's playing dirty, then, then you send your tough guy out like in hockey and, and you fight, which isn't considered dirty. It's kind of policing the action. So uh, I, was, I was interested in your opinion there and then, you know, we have uh, we have the All Blacks here in reference. Yeah, well, you that was the one question that I think most people got right. It's play harder, um, and and you know I think it's that that one's pretty intuitive. I think for a lot of people, and, and the the example you mentioned was the All Blacks, and this was uh, this was this famous match where that I saw early on when I was doing my research about captains by this guy Buck Shelford, and um, it was really an eye-opener because I'd never seen anything like it. I couldn't believe I'd never heard the story. They were playing France, and they were playing France in France. France was at the time the dirtiest team in rugby. I mean, they were just famous for what they would do, whatever they could do to get away with against you. So they knew they were in trouble. and But they went there, and they played the first of two matches. This is in 1986. Destroyed them. Just muscled them aside in the first match. And this guy, Buck Shelford, it was his first match with the All Blacks. No one knew anything about him. And he just was running people over and scored a try. And, you know, he was really the star of the show. So the French were like, not again. Not in our house. So they decided in Nantes, in the second match, that they were going to take this Shelford guy out. End of story. And there's a famous story which has been confirmed that they were all just took just mouthfuls of amphetamines. And they were out of their minds. (laughs) Really and seriously and truly. So they were headbutting each other in the tunnel. They were headbutting each other and then they and then they started headbutting the concrete walls. And their foreheads were bleeding. I mean they were out of their minds. They yeah. were just out for blood. Mm-hmm. So Shelford was their number one target and they went after him. Someone knocked out three of his teeth. He just spat him out and kept playing. Someone dove into a pile head first and knocked him unconscious. Just came to, went back in the game. Uh, someone sucker punched him, tried to bait him into a fight. He didn't take the bait, kept playing. Then the French captain kicked him in the groin, and he rolled around on the turf, and he was obviously in pain, but finally got up and kept playing. Um, finally, in the second half, the French were winning. They were really just clobbering. They knocked out three All Blacks, and they were just – it was the referee lost control. And they, he finally got a, another blow to the head, Shelfer, and didn't know where he was. They pulled him out of the game. Uh, and then they rarely lose this team. And so it was a really somber locker room and Shelford comes in, you know, beat up, like unbelievably takes off his uniform and strides. And I can't be too graphic, but there was a pool of blood at his feet and some horrible things had gone wrong in the groin area. Uh, and his testicle was actually hanging free from a, because he had been spiked and, and he, and his scrotum was ripped open so everyone was horrified and they ran him upstairs and it took 16 stitches to close to close the wound everything was okay uh but that he he played through that injury 
And in a game where they were clearly going to lose at a time when, you know, the referee lost control and there was no point. I mean, they, they, it was, it was, they should have just pulled the team off the field at that point, but he kept playing and that level of commitment. I mean, it's crazy and I wouldn't recommend it. I don't think you need to be that crazy to, to right. have a dynasty, but it certainly didn't hurt his team. And they went on his whole captaincy. They did not lose a single match. He's the only undefeated captain I've ever seen. And when the New Zealand Rugby Association, for whatever reason, got rid of him and just benched him for someone else, they lost two weeks later. There was the largest protests in New Zealand history were about Buck Shelford being benched. It was the lead story in the nightly news. It was a huge national um, scandal. And, you know, you see what happens. It just completely fell apart. But, you know, that that level of passion and commitment, I think, is – um, is something we can all learn from, even if we don't take it to that extreme. And, and that's fairly consistent, as we've seen, is when, and you mentioned, the streak, this this dynasty, long-term, four years and more, ends when this captain leaves, or, or to the level that they were performing. So you know, are we seeing this now actively with the Spurs? Is this what's going to happen when, when Tom Brady retires, when he says he's 45? I mean, we saw it with the Celtics, um, you know, U.S. women's soccer, in a way. Yeah, no, they they they've they're changed captains as well. Um, you know, and how do you, as an organization, you just go out and you you find your next your your, your next <laughs> you just captain, find the next great elite leader, right? <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the U.S. soccer team. They, you know, some teams just have this in their DNA. It's funny, you know, they and they do. You know, they had Carl Overbeck and, and they had. Um, Christian Rampone, you know, who's another great example. And Carly Lloyd, you know, she's new to a captaincy, but I think she can develop that as well. They just have a, they have a culture, like I talked about, that, that allows, I think, the right people to be chosen. And, you know, New Zealand has the same thing. New Zealand has a sports culture where it's like you sweep the sheds. No one's bigger than the team. And they really believe that, and it helps them pick good leaders. But no, these teams have, you know, they always struggle. I mean, it's really hard. And, Hopefully, if you're a coach, if you're someone who's running a team, and I've talked to uh, R.C. Buford from the Spurs, you know, who's very aware of this. He has a big transition coming, not just mm-hmm. with Duncan, but a coach and you know, a generation of players. And leadership's a huge part of it. So the Spurs, though, i got to tell this story because it's, it's funny. I was, I was wondering because they're playing really well without Duncan. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, all right, two things. Duncan was almost a statue at the time he right. left. I mean, he could barely play. He was playing 10 minutes a game, and he was, you know, old. Um, and and they have this culture, this talkative, open, you know, culture. They talk more than any other NBA team, and that's still there. But I like really on thought – on the floor. They're oh, totally. You look at timeouts, it's crazy. They just – it's they're famous for it. I mean, yeah. they're constantly talking, interacting. They're very vocal. They correct problems in the moment. They – have that sort of open talkative culture, which Duncan fostered with that kind of circulating thing that I talked about. But here's the thing. So I, I asked the Spurs, like, what's, what, what, how's it going this year? And they're like, well, it's not really much different. And I asked, why? And they said, well, Tim Duncan still comes to practice like three days a week. <laughs> Pro bono. Yeah. Like for no pay. To work with the players, and he sits there and he talks to them about matchups and how to handle them. And the thing is, wow. he wasn't really anything more than like a father figure on the court in his final season because he wasn't playing that much. But he's still doing the same thing. You know what? It still works. Yeah. But you know, ultimately, um, you know, it's going to be hard, and they're going to have to find or cultivate somebody or find someone who can 
who can play that role. And, you know, they have a good chance because I think they have a culture. Yeah. But they're losing so many players and they lose pop, then you have to start all over again. Yeah, it sounds like then, right, we, we know that, that culture is created by teams and leaders and it's passed down. So if you're an organization with a Tim Duncan uh, who's who's since uh, retired, then, then you take those best practices. You have to be very observant and then maintain that culture. And you can do it through a number of ways, as you mentioned. You have strong view. This is a good one because I get asked this a lot, especially from younger kids. And there's an, a whole other podcast probably reserved to, yes. to youth sports. But yes. you have strong views about how to fix your struggling team, but management won't listen. Would you write a letter outlining your concerns, go to the press and make your views public, threaten to quit or demand a trade, organize the players to stage a protest? So options one and threes feel feel most likely, or at least three, like professional sports. Um, although you can quit in, in high school, you're jeopardizing your, your college future. So I wrote, write a letter outlining your concerns, but there is there are have there have been many athletes that have quit or demanded a trade because there are certain organizations that you just don't get buy-in, right? right. I, I would bet there are captains that are exemplary in these certain behaviors that by virtue of the team that they were drafted to and then not traded from or traded to, they're a little bit handcuffed. And you have to have a coach that wants an equal partnership with their captain where you can be enabled. You have to have a front office that's bringing in the right type of talent and not bringing in egos, making your job more difficult. So anyway, let's talk about the right answer. I wrote write a letter outlining your concerns. Yeah, wrong answer. (laughs) Not a bad bad one. But, you know, I I give partial credit for that answer. No, this, again, was ripped from the headlines. And the answer is uh, go to the media and, you know, express your concerns. And this which feels like total it feels opposite, weird. I know right? everyone says yeah. keep it in a locker room, and and you know most most times I think it's important to do that. You should keep it in a locker room, but this is ripped from the headlines. So this is a, an example from Philip Lahm, who was the captain of that incredible German German, team. German soccer team, and uh, but he was a dual captain. You know, I paid him a lot of attention because he not only was a captain of Bayern, which you know was in the second tier of teams, incredible streak of four years. Uh, he was also the captain of the German national team that, of course, won the World Cup and a highest ELO rating of all time, by the way. Like, yep. they're probably the best national team ever assembled. Mm-hmm. So, and, and again, here's a guy, he's five foot five. He's called the Magic Dwarf. He, you know, he rarely scores. He's, he's all about pinpoint passing and serving the team and serving his teammates and, you know, is not at all eloquent. He sleeps 10 hours a day. He keeps all his money in a bank account because he thinks stocks are too risky. I mean, he's, a, he's exactly one of these characters, right? So anyway, but Philip Lahm, you know, here's – there's two pieces to this. All right, so Bayern Munich is run by this board, and it's like it's every legend of German soccer, and you do not cross the board. Right, it's Franz Beckenbauer, all these people that you would never cross, and he almost went to Barcelona, and he only stayed because the board said we'll be happy to listen to you once in a while when you have concerns or thoughts about our tag team tactics. And he, this team was playing terribly. They assembled the best team they ever had, sent millions of dollars on all these big players that couldn't play together, and they were terrible. And he he said something, kind of glanced at it on television. So the board called him in, and they and they and this board's very intimidating. They were like. He's like, oh, they want to talk to me about my thoughts about the team, right? Like they said. And they said, no, stop criticizing the team on television. Now get out of here. Yeah. And he was incensed. And he, so, mm. you know, the only path that he saw 
was to go to the media. He made an unauthorized interview. But if you read this interview, here's what's fascinating. So you think that someone who's a clubhouse cancer, someone who's uh, an agitator in a locker room, they always get thrown out. You know, because people are sick of them. But what Vlam did when you read this interview, which I had translated from German, is he doesn't say anything personal. He's, there's not a personal bad word. In fact, he was out of his way to say that his coach, the board, everyone has it in them to be great. He didn't criticize anyone. It was all about tactics. Hmm. So I found this study that, that explained this to me, which is that there's two kinds of conflict, and we often don't notice the difference. There's personal conflict, which when you just don't like someone, you're irritated, you're mad, and you want you know want to do something destructive. And then there's there's task conflict, hmm. and task conflict is conflict is centered on what's the team doing and how can it get better, and and that's the kind of conflict they engaged in. They never did anything personal, never said a personal bad word about anyone. It was always about what you know. If they, they were agitators, they were they were renegades. They would push back immediately when they thought something was going wrong. But they never made it personal, and that's why it worked. And all the research shows that that kind of conflict on teams that play under pressure is crucial to improvement and to correcting problems and to getting through tough situations. Yeah. So that's that's uh, that's a tough question. These were designed to be tough. Questions. Right. Right. I would say that the most difficult part about being in that position, and I love those 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 examples, particularly around a, a, a personal conflict versus task is that what you don't have control over, even if you're very explicit around task, is people then personalizing it and then it becoming pervasive in their culture. Is there anything that captains do uh, that can be preventative towards that? Or do they just have to be secure enough to know, hey, I'm being direct. This is what I'm talking about. If you're going to personalize it or draw conclusions like many people do, then that's out of my control or perhaps that's part of my point. This is a big fear. That's a great question. And, and this is the big fear that I keep hearing from people inside teams when I talk about this process and selecting one of these captains. It's this idea of, well, you know, are the other players going to accept their stature? Are the other players going to accept that decision? Will they push back? Will they try to, you know, fight back against this person? Will it create division in, inside the team? And here's the thing. I, I, what I believe from all the examples I've looked at is that this kind of person who genuinely cares more about the collective and not about themselves. It takes some time, but ultimately through their actions, especially when things start to go badly, that's when these leaders show up and do their thing. That's when you see these seven traits coming out. When you're winning, you don't really need leadership that much. Everything's going fine. It's when things start to go bad. And in those moments, that's where you see they will do things that no one would do in their right mind if they cared at all about themselves. They, they'll carry the luggage for their teammates. That was one of the examples I used. They, they do incredible things to, to their risk of their own health and safety to help the team. And through these acts of sacrifice and commitment, and they demonstrate to their teammates that they're collective captains. They're not personal captains. They're not out. They're not in it for the glory. Everything they're doing is about the collective. And ultimately, it wins people over. You know, because there's a lot of freedom there for everyone. If you yeah. know there's someone worrying about the collective and doing whatever needs to be done, even the grunt work to get the team through, it frees you up to focus on what your job is and what you need to do better and what you need to do right. Because the dysfunction of a team sucks everyone in. But if you feel like someone is there, you know, it's very releasing. And it's very – so ultimately, not only do they feel 
freedom when there's someone like that around. But ultimately, they, they understand what they're all about. And that genuineness will win them over, yep. over time. Yeah, in those difficult moments, it, it sounds like because they're the servants, because they're the water carriers, you, you mentioned carrying bags. That was one thing that Carla Overbeck did uh, right off the bus with the <laughs> 99ers and Team USA, as you mentioned in the book. Then you have that trust that's built. And while it is difficult and vulnerable to be calling out tactics, it, it doesn't become personalized. What you, we're talking about singular people, and, and you mentioned that a singular leader with an unconventional skill set a lot of teams and sports uh, have multiple captains. Bad strategy? Bad strategy. Well, I, I would single, I would say the NFL is weird because the NFL is basically three teams in one. And so it's okay for them to have multiple captains. You need a mm -hmm. defensive captain, offensive captain. You know, I'm, I have no problem with co-captains as long as everyone knows who the captain is. Uh, it's fine. I think they're, the, the title itself doesn't matter necessarily. I do think it's important to give the person the title, though, because it shows it's a gesture from management. It says, this is what our values are, and this is what we want. And all of these captains, with the exception of Yogi Berra, had the title. Yogi, the Yankees didn't have a captain because they didn't want to have a captain after Lou Gehrig, but he was a leader hmm. of that team. But So I don't know how much that really matters. What what really matters is that there's this that there's that centrality and that you know everyone in the room knows that that person is is the person who is going to be there and to serve the team in tough times gotcha i like this and this is for all the coaches that are listening identifying who this captain is you have a, a number of, of of ways to look at it in your book but the the uncomfortable around a praise test yeah. where, you know, literally look at athletes after a great game, tell them how good of a game they, they had and see their response. And the captains that you have, you know, the Bill Russells, the Carla Overbecks, Tim Duncans, Carlos Puyol, there, there are more. They are really uncomfortable with this praise. Totally. God, I, it's my favorite thing to do. It's an easy way to start. <laughs> it's so for easy. Coaches, right? <laughs> I call it the sneaky praise test. <laughs> okay. It's the simplest thing in the world. Just sit him in a chair and start saying, I looked at, you know, I saw you play, or I looked at you, even if you're in business, say, you know, I looked at your resume, oh my God, that project you were involved in, it wasn't incredible, your leadership was, must be exemplary, like you're really like outstanding, you've left a legacy, just lay it on really thick. Yeah. And, you know, there's one reaction you're looking for, which you're going to get from these captains. And I, I can't even tell you, this is the greatest slideshow. Look at look at Tim Duncan getting his his NBA Rookie of the Year award. Right. Look at the picture of him and David Stern. He's in like a ratty T-shirt and, and and a shorts, and he's got this frown like his dog just died. This has nothing to do with it. And then I just saw this a couple days ago. So the BBC interviewed Richie McCaw, who was the captain of the New Zealand All Blacks, mm -hmm. and. This long interview, he's the most popular person in New Zealand, by the way. Like, he could probably become president because they love him so much. <laughs> and he didn't even – he turned on a knighthood. I mean, he's one of these guys who was just like, you know, wants no press. But he gave this interview, and at the end, this, the interviewer just lays it on so thick. She's just like, you're the greatest and your legacy, and no one will ever equal you. And you just watch him. He's just squirming in his chair like he just wants to crawl out of his yeah. skin. Yeah. It's the funniest thing. So that's the easiest test. 
through that test, lay it on thick. And if they don't lay it off and say, you know, I had a lot of help. My teammate was great. It wasn't really about me. If they don't do that reflexively and automatically, then you might have the wrong person. I talked a little bit about earlier on the, the modern sports world and the transfer market and free agents jumping around, typically talent-based. My sense is that organizations, definitely the ones that you have listed, and even the tier two ones, they know when they have a great captain and kind of over their dead body, are they going to move her or him? If we get to a world where this hits critical mass and organizations then are going, well, you know, maybe pass on, on Westbrook, even though he's a free agent, and let's, let's grab this other guy who, uh, who seems to be you know, the glue to this championship locker room, and he may not be worth, according to the analysts, the max deal, but let's give it to him. There's a loyalty that, that these captains have, and you right. mentioned Carlos Puyol, and I love this guy, so I keep talking about him. Um, but there's a world where a, a world-class captain goes to another organization. Do they carry a championship with them? Are they able to go from club to club and win? I've seen some of them club hop and do well. I mean, Ferenc Puskas, who was the captain of the Hungarian team, he defected and played for Real Madrid during the streak where they won you know, five straight mm-hmm. Champions Leagues at the beginning. So, yeah, sometimes they do. He wasn't the captain of that team, though, interestingly, but he was very supportive of the captain. Mm. Um, no, they don't necessarily bring that. And, you know, but these captains don't want to leave. I think there's two things that come to mind. One, you know, I, I, one of the things I tell coaches, if you've got one of these people – the worst thing you just take them for granted. They're humble, so you think, oh, they don't need a lot of praise or care and feeding, but they really do. They need to know. Um, they need to know that you appreciate them, and mm-hmm. they need to know that you understand their value and the sacrifices they make. And they don't want attention. They don't want the player of the month plaque in a big ceremony. You just have to be sure that you, um, you know, if you're in a position to pay them, like you know. Offer them more, but don't make a splash about it. You, know, you just you have to show them you appreciate them. So that's the first thing. But you know, really, the 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 thing that is is most important when it comes to the entire team is that these captains, you know, you have to let them do their job, and you have to understand that you have to get some distance and let them actually do the hard work of leadership. And here's the the, the funny thing, though, I don't think it's that complicated. I don't think the, these captains are going to go very often. In fact. The Golden State Warriors are the best example of this. I love this example because the guy in the Golden State Warriors, and I've talked to Bob Myers, Jim, about this, is Andre Iguodala. He's the guy. You know, he was an NBA, NBA MVP, and you know he, they signed Kevin Durant, and he's coming off the bench, and he's fine with that. But the thing is, Iguodala started this whole thing because he got he went, he said, "I want an interview with the Warriors," a time when no one would go there, and. He went there and they were like, you know, we'd love to have you, but we don't have any cap space. He's like, I want to play for you, so make it happen. And they made it happen. He was the starting point of that whole dynasty. He showed up and it all started to work. So, and he saw what it was. And you know what he saw? He's one of these great leaders. Here's what he saw. He saw Steph Curry. And this is the other thing you need. You need a captain. You also need a Steph Curry. You need an unselfish superstar. Not completely unselfish. You need a superstar who is team-oriented. A Leo Messi, a Steph Curry, if you want to have a dynasty. A Pele. Pele was very team-oriented. That's what you have to have. So in, he saw that in place already. He saw Clay. He saw Steph. He saw what that team could be and its fan base. And he, he was attracted to it. And now look what happens. Durant comes. Durant not only signs. Iguodala comes. He's like, I'll come off the bench. That's fine. 
but Durant, you know, his contract's up. What does he do? He takes a pay cut mm-hmm. to stay with the team. If you have this nucleus and you build it, it's it's going to sustain itself. And you're not going to have to come to a point where you're going to want to trade your captain. I mean, Iguodala, you know, had a contentious battle with the team over money. Mm-hmm. A lot of these captains did. So you got to pay him fairly. But is he making Durant money? No way. He just wants to be paid fairly in a way that he feels like his representative and expresses his value. You know, that's, that's all you have to do, but there is some care and feeding, but look, if you get this thing in place, your whole job is just don't screw it up. Right. You know, when Steve Kerr is like the perfect guy and Steve Kerr is a perfect coach cause he gets it on so many levels. Cause he played with Jordan and, mm-hmm. and filled a lot of these roles in the second half of Jordan's career. And here's, here's the, the beauty. Everyone says, Oh, look, Steve Kerr was out for 20, for a month, right? He was out for a month, and, and they won. I think they lost one game without their coach. People were like, well, that's strange. No, it's not strange. That's what you want. Mm-hmm. They don't need a coach. At that point in the season, they don't need a coach. Mm-hmm. Everything's working perfectly. It's not a knock on Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr is doing his job, which is nothing. He, the team is working perfectly and is in perfect alignment. So he's doing, he doesn't have to do anything but just maintenance. So look to them. I mean, I don't can't think of a better, more obvious current example than those guys. Yep. And, and just to be clear, Sam isn't definitive in like, hey, you get this in place and you win every time. What he mentions, and even when you look at his pick in the NBA and, and, and San Antonio Spurs, is sustained winning. Right. And what makes sports so dynamic is that it's unpredictable and you can have a team that wins one season that doesn't have this captain that we're identifying. Easily, yeah. But do they maintain that over time? The answer is no. And is sports uh, quantified in a number of different ways right now? Absolutely. Everything from wearable technology to statistics, money ball, you name it. But through the lens of the captain class and, and now looking and trying to identify this type of player that can lead an organization to dynasty and beyond, I think is important and, and necessary to read and understand and really get behind if you believe in it. And again, all this will be in our show notes. Sam, it was, it was so nice for you to, to come and spend time with us. You brought me a signed copy. <laughs> so I actually have my current copy here. I have some notes, but I will give this one away to one of our listeners, nice. and I'll figure out how to do it over Twitter. But very excited to have you here. Learned a lot, and it's been a, a passion topic of mine. So thanks again. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate it. Great questions. It was a lot of fun. If you enjoyed Sam Walker as much as I did, please be sure to let us both know. You can continue this conversation with both of us on social media, Try us on Twitter, at Paul Rabel, and his is at Sam Walkers. Big takeaway for me. Sam might have uncovered a modern path to success in sports, and it begins with the captain. And I mean singular, woman or man, who is a servant to the greater team, the water carrier. Their focus is on the vibe or the culture of the team, enabling its stars and role players, best positioning them for success. It's not the best coach. It's not the best player. It's the best captain. Be the first to listen to future episodes as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick, action sports and NASCAR great Travis Pastrana, Team USA women's soccer captain Julie Foudy, and NFL quarterback and captain Drew Brees. Also entrepreneur and investor Gary Vaynerchuk. There's a list of more Suiting Up podcast guests by visiting suitinguppodcast.com. Also on the website, you'll find our show notes 
and the Captain Class book and quiz that I read with Sam. And that's it, everyone. Until next time, I hope you listen to another episode. And if it's your first time, thanks for coming aboard. You can find all of our episodes and more on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week.